The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Brian McLaren, is an author, activist, public theologian, and international lecturer. His work's been featured in Time Magazine, Newsweek, USA Today, The New York Times, The Washington Post, CNN, the list goes on. He's the author of over 15 books, and he's currently on the faculty of the Living School at Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation. His newest book is Faith After Doubt, Why Your Beliefs Stopped Working and What You Can Do About It. Brian McLaren is among seven spiritual radicals featured in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Brian McLaren, welcome to Essential Conversations. I'm really happy to be with you, Rami. Thanks. You're welcome. I'm very happy to talk with you. Like I said before we started, I've read lots of your books. I am a fan. Before we get into your new book, though, having said that, now let me throw something at you. <laughs> you know, I'm curious as to your take on the notion that I've heard from different places, that there's a Christian civil war going on in the United States, pitting liberal Christians and the social gospel against white Christian nationalists. And and I'm thinking about the number of Christian symbols held aloft by the insurrectionists storming the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, and the prayers to Christ they offered after taking over the, the house floor, there's a Christian pastor not too far from where I lived who, on the day before the insurrection, on January 5th, he tweeted this. I'm quoting him. May the fire of the Holy Spirit fall upon Washington today and tomorrow. May the Lamb of God be exalted. Let God arise and his enemies be brought low. Close quote. And the enemies of God, at least I imagine this is what he has in mind, are Jews and Muslims and the LGBTQ community and African-Americans and Christians, and I imagine Christians like yourself, whose Christianity <laughs> differs from his and, yes. and the insurrectionists. So what's been, what's your take on what's going on within Christianity? And what's your yeah. experience with people like that? Yeah, well, first, I would not soft pedal what you just said in any way. I think it is even worse than that. I think that there is a kind of sickness that has spread in white Christianity, especially. Uh, it bleeds out into other groups as well. But it is very unhealthy, and it is very dangerous. Of course, it's been here in the United States since the beginning. And as you would know, uh, Rami, it has roots back in Europe, where there was some ugly, horrible atrocities committed by Christians over many, many centuries against Jews, against Muslims, even against women who were decided, who were labeled as witches, right? So there are deep roots of this in the Christian faith. And I'd say 
what's happening is maybe three things at the same time. First, that that kind of right-wing Christian nationalism is getting more anxious, more virulent, more dangerous, more radicalized. Then I think the religious left, which you know people would place me in, I'm happy to be placed there, is becoming more confident to say, hey, that's we are not for that, and we provide an alternative. And then I think the really interesting piece of this is what's happening in the middle. All of these churches that have tried to not offend anybody, and now they're, I think, going to have to get some courage and get a backbone and realize that if they don't try to stand against this resurgence of racism and anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and homophobia that are all wrapped up in this white Christian nationalism, if they don't stand against it, they will end up being in some way sucked into it. So it is a very dynamic moment. And as you can imagine, I've been spending a lot of hours in phone calls and Zoom calls and conversations uh, about what we can do to try to uh, make a positive difference. Is there a way to change the minds of of people who are committed to that Christian nationalism? Well, in some ways, it's very much like people who now have been part of a cult and need to be deprogrammed. And one of the things that I think we have to find a way to do is to give an off-ramp into belonging. So here's where we have this very delicate work to do. I, I say we, meaning especially myself as a Christian, but in some ways, all of us who are concerned about our neighbors who are, have been sucked into this, we have to simultaneously stand against it, make it clear that we think this is wrong and, and work to organize alternatives. And at the same time, not pre- present a face of hatred toward the people. Because if the people are going to leave, they're going to be kicked out of their social circles, their families, their congregations. They just won't fit anymore. And so in some ways, they will, I think the way we human beings are wired, it is very hard to change your mind within a community. You, if, if the community requires you to stay with the old mind, right? Uh, so they're going to need new communities that welcome them. And they won't go from being, you know, full bore Christian nationalists to being raving progressives overnight. They're going to have to go through their own process, and they're going to need safe spaces to process that change. Mm. So, you know, I, I want to get to your book in, in a second, but I want to see if you can highlight the opposite trend, because I, yeah. I know that, you know, I said in the introduction, you, you are on the faculty of uh, the Living School at uh, Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation. That's a different kind of Christian. Yes. Who comes... You, you can generalize. I know a lot of students, and I'm yes. friends with Cynthia Borgio, who teaches there. Yes. And I know a lot of students at the Living School, but you know a lot more. So I'm just curious, yeah. who comes? What are they looking for Yeah, uh, when they come to, to, to hear a different version of Christianity? Yes. So I would say, really, they come from three groups. There, there are people who are Roman Catholic, the kind of Roman Catholics who would love Richard and would love Pope Francis. And what they're realizing is that the same kind of right-wing extremism that we see arising in white evangelicalism is also very virulent in white Catholicism. People like Steve Bannon, for example, who I think is one of the most dangerous people in, uh, in uh, you know, our, our world today, he, is a cat, he, he has a form of 
what right-wing crusader capitalism that he's deeply embedded in. So there's people who want an alternative to that. And then there are a lot of evangelicals who, who the CAC has become that off-ramp for them, a new community for them to be part of where they can learn and practice and deepen in a different kind of spirituality. And then the third group are what I would call mainline Protestants. These are Methodists and Lutherans and Episcopalians who go to very nice, polite churches where the liturgy goes on each week, but they're looking for something a little deeper and more experiential that brings together action and contemplation. And so they're looking for something beyond business as usual. So it makes for an interesting mix of people from those different traditions. Yeah. I guess I think it's important that uh, our listeners know that there are other movements within Christianity that are you know, gaining traction. I mean, I guess it's called Center for Action and Contemplation. I think you're going to have to storm the Capitol as your action <laughs> in order to get some press. But uh, it, it's, it's important to know that this is, th- there is an alternative that's also brewing in the U.S., Yes. You know, as the, I should just say, as these sort of white Christian nationalists have been gaining political power, they're losing percentage of the population. And so now white evangelicals, I think, are something like 17% of the population, uh, maybe 16%, about the same size as what I was calling mainline Protestants. And white Roman Catholics are uh, uh, in that same range, a little less too. So they're, they're gaining power, but they're driving their young people away and driving their more educated people away. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess, let's just salvage one word uh, in, from the convers- in the conversation so far, the word evangelism. Yes. I mean, all Christians are supposed to evangelize. It's become a dirty word. Yes. But it wasn't meant that way. What, what's the, the real meaning of being evangelical? Well, you know, the word evangel means good news. And of course, it really has two sources. One is from the Hebrew scriptures, where, for example, the prophet Isaiah says, you know, go up on a high mountain and proclaim good news. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news, the picture of someone running from town to town, bringing good news. And in Greek and Roman culture, there was a similar image of the herald who would go to town to town because internet speeds were really slow back in those days. <laughs> and, um, and a lot of people didn't subscribe to the local paper. So it, news actually traveled by heralds, uh, people who had, were runners, and they would, bring, they would bring news of a military victory or news of warning or wh- whatever. But this idea that, 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 um, that there are better alternatives out there, I think that's kind of the, the real heart of, of that, that message. Yeah, that's an important message in it. And the word, I mean, so many words in a variety of religions have been hijacked by the yes. most extreme elements. And, and we, we need the vocabulary. We need to take the vocabulary back. That said, let, let's switch over to your book. So the time, and talking about vocabulary a little bit, the title of the book, it seems to me, uses the words belief and faith interchangeably. Mm. I, I don't, personally, I see them as two different things. But can you give us a quick definition of, of how you understand the words belief and faith? Yes. Well, actually, I use those two words because I think a lot of people do take them interchangeably, but yeah. I actually, and a real message of the book is they aren't the same thing. For an awful lot of people, and this is especially true of Christians, for a lot of Christians, Christian faith means adherence to Christian beliefs. So it ends up being, and each different denomination 
might tweak their their list of beliefs. But in some ways, the whole idea of being a Christian in many, many people's minds is saying, I uphold these beliefs of this creed or this doctrinal statement. And what has become really, really clear is that there is little, if any, correlation between a person's beliefs and their moral behavior, <laughs> um, as that as January 6th showed. So uh, what I'm proposing to people is that, no, faith isn't beliefs. Faith is a way of orienting our lives toward love and a way of orienting our lives toward our unknowing. And it's a way of uh, well, one way to say it is it's a way of orienting our lives in hope toward love. That's a beautiful way of putting it. I, I think I got my definition of faith from Father Thomas Keating. And, and if I remember him right, it was basically an attitude of curiosity, humility, compassion toward the unknown, yes. you know, what's actually happening, and not and as opposed to belief, which is a, an affirmation of something that I know, but yes. there's no evidence that it's true. Yes. So. The book is filled with all kinds of fascinating ideas. The one that I think might be of benefit to our listeners the most is what you call the four stages of faith. Yes. Simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. So I, I get the fact that this is a short show and you know there's not a lot of time, but can you give us a sense of what these are yes. and how we move through them? You know, I'd be happy to. And I always want to say, first, there are many theorists of human development and faith development. And what I try to do with these four is not come up with something better than all the others, but to in some way synthesize them in, in a manageable way. And, and, and I also like to say that life is super messy and anybody's stage schema doesn't help. But for anyone who's ever given birth or been present when someone is giving birth, I just remember when my wife uh, and I, when we had our four children, we were told that there's different stages of pregnancy. And then we were told there's different stages of delivery. And there's a really scary stage that people call transition right before the baby's born. And it is so scary. And when you know that it's coming, then at least you don't have the additional panic of not knowing what to expect. Uh, and I think that's how stages work. So the four stages I talk about, simplicity is basically the stage of dualism, where we do the important work of learning right versus wrong, lie versus truth, uh, fair versus cheating. And, and those basic moral categories are really, really important. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people are told that's the only thing it means to be religious, and so they spend the rest of their lives being proud that they're on the good side of the equation and judging everyone else who's on the bad side. A lot of people, those dualisms don't work anymore, or, or they, they're unsatisfied with them. They move into the second stage of complexity, and they start to realize there are a lot of different games. Different groups have different sets of what's right and wrong. And so then you start the complex work of navigating your life, working in all of these different games, you know and different sets of rules. And so now I, I call stage two the stage of pragmatism. I know what my rules are, but now I learn how to navigate with many other people's com complex rules too. And a lot of people, religion seldom goes beyond stage two for a lot of, at least a lot of people in my own tradition. Stage three comes, uh, perplexity comes when people start saying, you know what, all those easy rules and in-out dichotomies of stage one, and all of those very simplistic steps to this and, and keys to that. Life is too messy for that. This doesn't account for the reality that I'm experiencing. 
and I'm unsatisfied now with that whole package. And in some ways, this is the stage where people either give up faith or they make their faith their own. And, um, and stage four, I think, grows out of stage three, uh, where we say, okay, I've lost certainty. I've, a lot of my beliefs don't make sense anymore, but how am I going to live my life? And when we enter into, when we go beyond perplexity with a sense of empathy and compassion for people and a desire for justice and fairness for everybody and a sense of humility for how much we don't know, that's when I think we, we, we cross into that fourth stage, which if we live in it long enough, becomes a new simplicity. And then we go through those cycles again. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Like a spiral. So the same, the same four stages, but on a higher, a higher level each time. I you know? think so. You know, one way I say it is if you think about the rings of a tree, uh, each new ring includes the rings that went before. You don't leave them behind. You just expand and grow into some new territory. Yeah. So that's like what uh, Ken Wilber calls transcend and embrace, I think. Yes. Or- Yes, transcend and include. include yeah, include, yeah, right, right, exactly, yeah. exactly. So you, you write in the book that uh, your sense is, I'm just going to quote you, our civilization stands in late complexity yeah. with some of us leaning toward forward into critical perplexity and others leaning backward into pre-critical authoritarian simplicity. So yeah. that that's pretty optimistic. <laughs> if someone had asked me, I would have said uh, early complexity at best. And yeah. So... How do you move people from, or is it even possible to help people move from stage to stage? Yes. Well, um, Rami, when I look back in my own life, I, I realized that I met people who I knew didn't fit in my box. <laughs> they got something that I didn't get. And I didn't get them, but I knew they saw something I didn't see. And I think one of the ways we help each other in this is by just being a presence in one another's lives that there's another way to do things. I, just as an example, so I grew up in this very conservative Christian group, and I remember I met this guy a few years older than me, and I, I asked him some theological question. And everything I came, all of the answers I got as a stage one kid were, this is right, that's wrong. And this guy said to me, you know, there are four or five different ways to look at that. And then he presented each of these different viewpoints fairly, and said, you really can make your own choice. Uh, And I remember saying, well, but which one of them is right? But he was in stage two. He wasn't interested in telling me which one was right. He wanted me to be able to think about that for myself. And I just remember thinking, he's a little different, you know? Uh, And so I think one of the ways that we help each other is just by having the people who are, have moved through a stage to be able to be public about it, to set an example about it, and to not be hateful. Because if if what people in later stages do is are always attacking and insulting people in the earlier stages, what that does is it makes people become defensive. And they think anybody who's not like us hates us. 
and I don't want to be like them. Right. Right. I mean, I, I, you hear that a lot. You hear that a lot with liberals and conservatives and, you know, yes. all of that. I'm not sure it works. You know, I'm just not sure that the, the, the fear is so high among some people yes. that no matter how compassionate and welcoming someone else is, if you're not like them, they're just not going to, they're, they're going to turn on you anyway. Yeah. I, I don't want to overestimate what I was saying. I don't think it, it happens easily and often. And in fact, Everything I've read and also all of my experiences, it usually takes a major disruption for people to be willing to change. Some major disillusionment, some major disruption to the uh, hitting hitting rock bottom in some in some way. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly mind. right. Who who do you think you write for? Uh, the, the simplicity crowd, complexity crowd, etc. Well, you know, this book is especially for the people in that third stage of perplexity. Um, but I try to write about all three stages so that a stage one person could maybe read the book, maybe the way that, uh, you know, a young woman who just found out she's pregnant reads a book about the later stages of pregnancy. She's not ready for everything in the book yet, but she wants to be prepared. And I think people in stage two really like to be prepared. So hopefully it could be helpful to them. I always have pastors and priests and rabbis and imams and other clergy in mind too, because it's a tough job being a spiritual leader and understanding that the people in your care are at different places, I think can help us do a better job. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. When, when you say, um, you know, you're writing for the people in, in the third if I if I heard you right, the third, in the perplexity stage, yes, and you use doubt in a way that is, I think, very liberating. You put doubt in a positive light. Yes. So tell us how tell us what you mean by doubt, and then how doubt can help free people from that narrow simplicity. Yes. Well, let, let me use it maybe an example from history, and then an example from my own life. You know, you think historically, you go back five hundred, six hundred years, and virtually every person, at least in the West believed that the earth was in the center of the universe and there were these 10 concentric crystal spheres moving around the earth and the moon was in a sphere and the sun and the stars and planets and so on. And then Copernicus and then later Galileo come along and say, we'd like to make a slight alteration in your model of the universe. And of course, religious people were infuriated by this because they had accommodated all of their beliefs to that very static earth-centered universe. And God to them was almost like an aquarium keeper who's sitting outside of this big goldfish bowl of the universe and, and intervening from time to time and so on. And, and, and so um, to, to begin with, to, make, to, to invite people to doubt their model of the universe was super disruptive. And they couldn't even imagine believing in God anymore because how could God fit in a different universe? But we went through that period of doubt and God actually became, their concepts of God actually became a little bit bigger. And then we've gone through additional changes since with Darwin and, and Einstein and all the rest. And each time it challenges us uh, to embrace a bigger understanding of the universe, which then means our understanding of God has to grow. Uh, so that would be you know something we've seen play out in history. I, in my own life, though, my father's father was a white supremacist. He was not from the U.S., he was from Scotland, but he was a, it was called British jingoism, and he was a real white supremacist. And 
my father was so different. He was one of the most racially, you know, progressive people I knew growing up. And I, I asked him one day about that. And um, I realized that if my father hadn't doubted his father's beliefs, I would have had a very, very different childhood. So doubt is what often is necessary for us to become more ethical and humane people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I get that people are afraid to doubt their beliefs, especially if they think uh, those beliefs are what gets them into or keeps them out of some you know, paradise yes. after they die. Yes. So it's, it's a real challenge. But I, yes. you know, not to pat your back again, but I think, I think you're, the book really goes a long way toward, toward doing that. In, in what you were just saying, you made me think of something that I, I hadn't thought to talk to you about. But as doubt helps us drop the old paradigm and embrace a newer paradigm, you said our, our concept of God changes. So what, what is your sense of the divine? Mm. Well, you know, the, the older I get and the farther along I go, the, the harder that is to talk about. <laughs> uh, the, the less words seem to be helpful because I want to say, well, let's go take a walk, or I want to say, let's listen to some amazing music, or I want to say, let's watch some people in action. And whatever God is, I think we will get a better sense of it than through a lot of words. But I think one of the things that I think more and more people are rightly doubting is the big guy in the sky kind of image of God as a kind of dictator who is really mad that a bunch of people aren't doing what they're supposed to do and can't wait to clean this place up and get everybody thrown in jail uh, as possible. You know, that kind, of, uh, that kind of image of God becomes less and less credible, especially as we watch how the people who hold it behave toward other people. So I think what, what that's doing is it's, it's pushing an awful lot of us to have an understanding of God that is less uh, well, it, it's it's disconnected from that that kind of patriarchal dominating figure. Yeah, one of my I don't know fear is the right word, but you know, one of my concerns is that people imagine that that that, that supernatural, judgmental, violent, and violence inducing and sanctioning God is the only God idea we got. Yes, and, yes, and you yes. Go from, you go from that to just. Atheism. I mean, when you read, you know, the new atheists, the God that they don't believe in is the most primitive idea of God or the most, uh, yes. in your, you know, the, in the simplicity stage that you talk about, the God of the simplicity stage. Yes. And that, that God is, like you said, it's, it's, it's horrible and sanctions all these horrible things. My sense, since I asked you the question, I want to get your take on this. Yes. My one of the best definitions, and I and I absolutely agree that this is all beyond language. I mean, in yes. in, in the Jewish tradition, you can't even say the name of God because it's literally yes. unpronounceable. Yes. Uh, so so I understand that, and I'm very interested in other traditions and Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching. And the opening verse says, "The Tao that can be spoken about isn't the Tao." So yes. I, I, I get the limitation of language. Having said that, I love. The book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 28, where Paul, yes. or in my, my way of thinking, Rabbi Saul, uh, yes. defines God as that in whom we live and move and have our being. That, yes. I love that definition. Yes. That, it yes. sounds like the Tao. 
or you yes. know, if you're into Star Wars, it's the Force, you know, that kind of thing. Yes, yes. Does that does that text speak to you? Yes, yes, yes. In fact, and what's so fascinating about that text is he's quoting a Greek poet when he says that, and and so he he's found that he needs to borrow some language from another religion and culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, this sense uh, that it, it's so much of our traditional theology always wanted to separate God from the universe. And I think one thing that is, you know, we're, that's changing, it, it, and I know it's changing in what we might call progressive Christianity, is that we're saying, no, whatever God is, God is encountered and experienced through our life, through our experience, through this universe, through this creation. And so we, and so that language of the one in whom we live and move and have our being is is so it just feels so right and fitting. Yeah, yeah I think that's a great passage. You know, there's a, one other place in the New Testament that is one of these weird places where it, the writer just says, "Here's what God is," and he says, "God is love." And to me, to think about God as the love by which I encounter other people, the love by which I encounter the world itself, the love with which I encounter a pet or an animal, the love with which I encounter myself, that, um, that, you know, it's just fascinating short sentence. God is love that, that's sitting right there in the new Testament, but it is almost too powerful for people to know, <laughs> to know what to do with. Yeah. That's very similar. I think the way you say it anyway, uh, to Martin Buber's I thou experience yes. where the eternal yes. thou is speaking yes. through the entire universe as the entire universe. There's a uh, a beautiful phrase by St. Bonaventure, uh, the Franciscan theologian, who says, um, God, is, uh, God is the love whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which right, has this right. beautiful sense of boundlessness and all the rest. Yeah. Well, that is where we're going to have to leave it. I could talk to you about, I mean, I could talk about God forever, (laughs) even though I know words don't work. It's just a fascination of mine since I was a teenager. But we are out of time. Our guest today, Brian McLaren, is the author of Faith After Doubt, Why Your Beliefs Stopped Working and What to Do About It. He's among seven spiritual radicals featured in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. And you can learn more about his work on his website, brianmclaren.net. Brian, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. I really look forward to being with you. Thanks so much. Our pleasure. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings, and on my new podcast, Conversations on the Egg. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury-Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.
Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.